The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're down to our last lesson on hermeneutics. It's entitled Application, which is a little, well, it's very separate from interpretation. Uh, it's very appropriate in God's providence that David taught us through what he taught us this morning because this does have to do with being a doer of the word. Before we get to application, we want to just review what we've covered over the last, I don't know, 12 weeks or so. And we started with the need for hermeneutics. Hermeneutics being principles of interpretation, valid principles of interpretation that we use to properly uh, interpret the Bible. And we recognize that, you know, not everybody agrees on what different passages of the Bible says. And everybody has some interpretive principles that they use when they interpret. They can be different even within evangelical Christianity. So it's an important foundational study for us to make those principles explicit and really take a look at them and make sure that what we're doing is proper in our interpretation. We looked at the history of interpretation. Perhaps some of you were surprised by, as you look through church history, how much allegorization has taken place. Uh, very early on even, some 200 years after the, uh, after the church was born, there were two schools that developed. The Alexandrian Fathers, uh, started by Origen, really took an allegorical approach to the scriptures, and that dominated much of church history. There were those Antiochian Fathers in the Antiochian School of Interpretation that held more to a literal historical grammatical interpretation that we've advocated for in our, uh, in our teaching. And then, of course, by the time we get to the Reformation, the Reformation was very much a reformation of hermeneutical principles of how you approached a subject more broadly even than just the scripture but of going back to original sources trying to understand what the author's intent was and using a literal grammatical historical method to do that we talked about how the bible is both a human book and a divine book it's a human book in the sense that it was written by men to be understood by men it is uh, not a mystical book it's a book that's written in our language, or well, it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic originally, but it was written in human language to be understood by human beings. Uh, at the same time, it's a divine book. It's a book that's ultimately authored by God. There's going to be things that are hard to understand because of that, because God is eternal and we're not. There's also going to be, though, a continuity in what's said through the whole of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, because God is the one that stands behind those 40 different authors that wrote over 1,500 year period of time. We talked about bridging gaps. David gave us a good example this morning of the cultural gap. We read the word mirror in the book of James and we think of something in our bathrooms that very, very clearly reflects us and we can see our, all of our faults. Uh, they didn't have that technology quite yet in the first century or earlier and they were polishing, as David said, chrome or brass to get a reflection, something they could see for sure, but not as clearly as we could. So it's important as you come across different things like that in Scripture to recognize that it was a different culture, different time, different place. That often requires us to go back and do some digging on that particular setting to better help us understand what's going on. Certainly there's a grammatical gap that we overcome because of the language differences. Uh, you know, we have some excellent English translations, and that's a huge help to us just to be able to understand what the message of the Bible is as a whole. 
But there's times where different English words could translate either a Hebrew or Greek term, and we want to look at those options because it could help clarify something. Translators are already making that decision for us in many cases, and, and very often they're right. But sometimes we have to go back to the original to get a clearer understanding. Then there's a literary gap. That chapter really dealt more with the fact that there are different literary genres in Scripture. Old Testament narrative, the gospel accounts, uh, even prophecy would be somewhat of a different genre. Uh, the epistles in the New Testament. Uh, we need to take the book of Proverbs, for example. We need to take those different genres into account as we read. Uh, we do that automatically to some degree, even as we read other types of literature, but it's important that we do that. Literary analysis also had to do with the structure of books. It's amazing how when you read a book and you're trying to find what I would call the inspired outline, how much clearer that can make the book for you and how you can see, and David's done a good job with this as well, what James, what, how he's tracking, what he's leading to as he builds his argument. That's a really important thing to do in every Bible book. Sometimes it's easier than others. Isaiah, to me, is extremely difficult to do that with. And there's other books even in the New Testament that are hard to do that with. But that's something that you want to look at as you're doing your study and as you're listening to somebody teach even, is analyze the structure of the book. Figures of speech are a part of every language. Bible's full of them, and we need to understand what those are communicating. We have some good resources to help us with that. Hebrew poetry is very prevalent, um, particularly in the Psalms, some in the prophecies, some in other places. Uh, the dominant, what is the dominant feature of Hebrew poetry? It's not rhyme like it would be in English. No, so not the chiasm either. Oh. Uh, that is a, a dominant uh, pa structural pattern in the Old Testament. Parallels. Parallelism. Parallelism. So the idea of uh, one line and then the second line repeating largely what's in the first line, but it, saying it in a different way. And just being, just being cognizant of that, recognizing that as you read through, that will help you in cases when you're reading Hebrew poetry. Types and symbols, types being something in the Old Testament that foreshadows or, uh, yeah, foreshadows an, a later event in the New Testament. I would argue, not everybody agrees with this, I would argue that you can't recognize the type in the Old Testament until you get to the New Testament and the New Testament author points back to it. I don't think the original audience understood the types in the Old Testament. Symbols we have to be careful about. There are symbols in Scripture where the meaning is pretty consistent, horns, for example, being an example of uh, power or a symbol of power. Uh, but we, we, again, we want to be careful about not pressing something into a symbol that's not there and just trying to understand how looking at other places in Scripture to see how some, something else might shed light on what that symbol means. Parables we've talked quite a bit about, a parable being an, an extended simile, saying the kingdom of God is like something else and the whole story that follows being illustrating some aspect something that wasn't revealed in the earlier in the Old Testament about the kingdom of God allegories scripture uses them uh, there's very different there's a very significant difference between allegorizing and interpretation 
and recognizing that an allegory is a legitimate form of an extended figure of speech. When Christ talks about being the good shepherd or, or being the door of the sheepfold, he's using the allegory to explain all that, but that's not the same as allegorical interpretation. <clears throat> prophecy, we approach prophecy with the same hermeneutic that we do every other kind of literature in the Old Testament, and that's, that's a difference between us and covenantal theology. They would say that you need to approach prophecy with a different kind of hermeneutic or at least some different stipulations than you do historical grammatical interpretation. Finally, last week we looked at the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a fascinating study. It's something where it's used differently by different New Testament writers as they have their purposes. Um, remember, they're under inspiration, so they can do things that we can't in our interpretive method. Uh, but what we came to the conclusion there was the best thing that we can do in each case is go back to the Old Testament passage, understand what it's communicating in its own context first there, and then see how the New Testament writer is using it. Sometimes it is a straight prediction and fulfillment. Oftentimes it's not. It's something different from that. Okay, so let's talk about application now. We're going to define application. I came up with this definition on my own, believe it or not, and it's not very complex. Uh, you might add, have something to add to it, but it's a change in attitude or action that comes about as a result of a proper understanding and really, it's a response to a proper understanding of a section of Scripture. That section could be as small as one verse. It could be a whole book. But some section of Scripture. And it's, remember, note that I said attitude or action. I think a lot of times we think about application as something that we do. And oftentimes it is. It also can just be a different way that we think. And that will influence something that we do in the way that we do it. Zuck speaks of the tendency towards two different errors for us as believers as we seek to apply the Bible. In the first error, some feel interpretation is enough, that Bible study is complete when a passage has been interpreted. Uh, again, I think David hit that pretty hard for us this morning, that that's not enough. That's not where it stops. In the second error, it's really on the other end, others tend to move toward application before fully and accurately interpreting the passage. And he's gonna, I'm going to have another quote from Zook that I think is really important concerning this. However, application without interpretation leaves us open to applying the Bible improperly. Um, that's really important. Sound application has to be based on proper interpretation. So you, you don't shortcut that process. You understand fully what the text says, what it means, and then you ask the question, what does this, what does this mean for me? What, do I need to change something that I'm doing? Do I need to change the way that I'm thinking? That's the difference between application and interpretation. Now, people talk about, uh, and I guess sometimes they're saying this with reference to teachers or preachers of God's Word, making the Bible relevant. I don't like that. Uh, the Bible is relevant. It's relevant because it's the Word of God. Now, it's going to have different relevance for us depending on what section we're looking at but we don't make the bible relevant it, it relevant it's it, it is already because it comes from the living god and it's unchanging all right so let's talk about application and what what i call the ease of application spectrum if we think about it 
as a continuum. On each end, you've got certain Bible books, certain Bible passages. They're very difficult, I would argue, to apply. On the other end, we have something very easy to apply. I'm, I'm curious. I've got some candidates for both of these. What would you say? What are the Bible books as you read through the Bible, parts of the Bible? What, what Anton? Did you have one? Numbers. Okay, numbers. It's a good one. Uh, what else? What else are hard candidates to apply? Well, Revelation. Okay. Anybody else have some hard ones? My first choice was Leviticus. Now, there's parts of Leviticus that I find fascinating, especially Leviticus 26, because I think it, in one chapter, encapsulates, summarizes what's going to happen with Israel and what God is going to do in response to, first, their unfaithfulness, and then, ultimately, their repentance. I'm reading Leviticus right now. I just finished reading it. And, uh, you know, you read it about all those uh, sacrifices and all these procedures that the priests have to go through. We don't do any of that today. Not even Israel's doing it today, right, because you don't even have a temple. But what application can you draw out of Leviticus? Are there principles there? God is holy. I mean, that comes through really clearly in the book of Leviticus. Not only is he holy, he wants us to be holy. So the procedure and the way that they demonstrate that was different back then and with the nation of Israel than it is for us. But you can still make application in your own life by abstaining from sin, by being quick to confess your sins and repent of them. Um, those are the kind of lessons that even in a book that's as hard as Leviticus is to apply, you can still come away with. Uh, Kings and Chronicles, to me, again, I think really important history. I think 1 Kings 1 through 11 is a fascinating story of Solomon, his building of the temple, his really the, the rise of the nation of Israel and their glory, and then their sudden fall as, as Solomon himself fell. Uh, it's not, it doesn't seem immediately applicable applicable to my everyday situation, but it's still the same kind of lessons you can draw that. I, I say that to say sometimes it's going to be that way, and you're going to have to really think through what's the message of this whole book. We can learn from Solomon's example the fact that he disobeyed three very explicit commands that the Lord gave him, and he suffered the consequences. Kingdom, the whole nation, suffered the consequences of Solomon's sin. What about on the other end? What are the books that are easiest for us to apply? Proverbs is one of the easiest one. That's what, that was my first choice, too. I love Proverbs. It's extremely practical. I've loved it since I was a young believer. What else? What, what is the, the section of Scripture that is most easily applicable for us? I started to say most relevant. It's all relevant, relevant in different ways. But what is it that's most directly written to us? The epistles, the letters to the churches. Uh, that's who we are. We're part of the church. And Paul and Peter and James and whoever wrote Hebrews, they're writing to us as members of the church. So Ephesians in particular, as you read through Ephesians, there's nothing in there that isn't relevant and applicable for us. The first three chapters are describing what God has done and what his character is like and what our identity in Christ is. And then the last three are telling us 
how we're to live in light of that character. That was written to a first century group of believers. I think Ephesians was written to be circulated among churches in the first century. But you read that and you think, well, this is just as relevant for us today and just as applicable for us today as it was when it was first written. Um, I think also it's important as you're reading through much of the Bible, well, as you're reading through any of the Bible, to recognize, again, what the genre of literature is and what you should properly expect to draw from that particular section of Scripture. For example, the Gospels. What is it that we get from the Gospels? Who Jesus is, the life and ministry of Christ. Now, we read about him. We read about him doing miracles and raising people from the dead. We don't expect, hey, we should be able to do that too. That's not the way that we look at that. We recognize that he came, that he showed his messianic ID card, if you will, and that all of his ministry was driving people towards recognizing that he was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. We read Proverbs. We talked about that already. Uh, it's very practical wisdom for everyday living, and we, we can read those and, and put them directly into practice. The gospel, well, we talked about the Gospels. Acts describes the birth and progress of this new entity called the church. You know, it's different from the nation of Israel. It's born at Pentecost, and what Acts is describing is really the transition from God's dealing primarily through the nation of Israel during the Old Testament period now in the first century and going forward is going to be through the church. He hasn't rejected Israel, but they've been temporarily set aside until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And Acts records that transition uh, from, there's a lot of commonality between the church and Israel, but they're two different things. Uh, and there's Israel that's under the law and the church that's not. And Acts just records that for us. Uh, and we would be uh, in a lot of darkness if we didn't have the book of Acts to help us in those regards. Revelation, Andre mentioned that one is difficult to apply, but it is also a book that gives us detail about the events preceding Christ's return. Now, we're not going to be here, and you might think, well, if we're not going to be here, why do we need to know all that? But it's, well, for one thing, we need to make sure that we're in this group that's going to be raptured out, and we just need to know the end of the story, right? We, we live in these times now where, and people throughout church history have thought they were at the end of time. Certainly we're closer to it now than we ever have been. But we need to understand that God is going to finish out his plan of redemption. And it's going to be the worst period that the earth has ever uh, endured. That's what Christ himself says in all of that discourse. But then it's going to be followed by the millennial kingdom and Christ's return to rule on the earth and ultimately, ultimately by the new heavens and new earth. So let's walk through. Zuck gives nine steps to properly uh, apply the Bible, and we'll just walk through those one at a time. First, as we've already said, we want to build application on interpretation, and this is the quote that I mentioned earlier, referenced earlier. In their intense desire to find something devotional or practical, Christians sometimes distort the original meaning of some passages of Scripture. Again, it's not an ill-intentioned desire. People read the Bible devotionally, if you will, and they, no matter what section of Scripture they're reading for that day, they, they want to take away something that they can do often. And sometimes it's not something that you do. And 
oftentimes it needs to be more than just a couple of verses. You need to read the context and really have a good understanding of the context of the whole book that you're reading in. So you want to be careful even in the way that you approach whatever time you spend with the Lord each day in Scripture. I'm not saying you could read Proverbs for sure and just get a good solid application out of a couple of verses, but you want to be more systematic in your uh, reading and interpreting and applying other sections of the Bible. Applications should be based directly on the meaning and relevance of the text to its original audience. So that part's interpretation, right? Trying to understand what it meant to the original audience and trying to understand exactly what the author was saying. You make applications based on that and in light of the purpose of the book as a whole. Okay? Secondly, determine what was expected of the original audience. Some commands are given to specific individuals at specific points in time. Others are for all church-age believers. Now, <clears throat> I think you've probably read about people that have read things that somebody was commanded to do in the Old Testament, and they thought, well, I can do that too. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example now. Okay, that's a good example. So <clears throat> Gideon did that in order to be able to try to determine the will of God. And, and people think, well, if he can do it, I can do it too. Think about the fact that of the way that God communicated in the Old Testament. He often did it through dreams. But those were people that didn't have the revelation, the completed revelation that we have today. Um, Certainly there are commands that were given to people in the Old Testament that were just for those individuals, right? Abraham's command to sacrifice his own son. Noah, the command to Noah to build an ark. We're, we're not subject to those commands. We don't have a responsibility to obey those. Uh, there was a, there's a commands even in the New Testament that fit that bill. When Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus in the books, especially the parchments got to love Paul even while he's in this dark dank prison he still wants to study and know the Word of God but that's a command to Timothy that he fulfilled um, at the same time as we talked about the book of Ephesians those are commands for all of us and I think I think it's easy enough for us to make those distinctions right we've given some pretty obvious examples but there's sometimes it'll take more discernment than others but you need to recognize what was expected of the original audience uh, what may or may not necessarily be expected of us today. And that goes to the next one. Base your application on elements present-day readers share with the original audience. And again, this is why the epistles are so important for us as part of the church. Church believers since Pentecost and church believers all over the world are all part of the same body. We're all part of the universal church. We depend upon apostolic authority, that's what we have in the writings of the apostles in Scripture, for guidance and faith and practice. Okay? Fourthly, recognize how God's work, working varies in different ages. And that, <clears throat> I'm not necessarily talking about dispensations here, though some of you may hear that when you hear what I said. It's especially important, though, to recognize that the Israel and the church are separate. They are distinct, and the commands and instructions to each of them are distinct. Now, again, there's overlap, certainly, between those. I've 
heard people use this illustration, you know, there's a lot of commonality, I would imagine, between the laws of Canada and the laws of the United States. But when you go to live or even visit in Canada, you obey the laws in Canada. If you might be allowed to do something in the U.S. you're not allowed to do there, that's not going to be an excuse if you get caught doing something you're not supposed to. In the same way, we're subject not to the Old Testament law, and we know we're not subject to it because Scripture itself tells us that. That was decided in Acts 15. But we are subject to the New Testament instruction that we're given in the Scripture. You know, we talked about this early on, too. The Bible is a progressive revelation. And God does change the way that he deals with man and the, and the revelation that he gives to him over time. You know, the diet of man changed before the, after the flood versus before the flood. If you've ever heard or posed the question yourself, where did Adam's children get their spouses? Well, early on they had to marry brothers and sisters, right? That changes over time. It comes to be forbidden over time, certainly forbidden today. What was that noise? <laughs> so it's important to keep that in mind. It's important to recognize where you are in the progress of Revelation as you're studying any particular passage. And we're fortunate today in that we, we have the completed revelation of God. We're not expecting anymore. We go all the way to the end of the story. So that's a good thing for us. At the same time, it brings more responsibility as well. Determine what's normative for today. And this is where Zook quotes uh, Dr. Richard Mayhew, which, who was one of my seminary professors. Mayhew writes, We're not expecting a trip to the third heaven like Paul's in 2 Corinthians 12, nor do we believe that God restocks the food supply of those who feed traveling preachers as he did for the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. Leprosy patients do not dip seven times in a river to be cured nor do we throw sticks on the ground and expect them to turn into serpents. You know, just because something happened in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it, it should happen to us. We have to distinguish between what's prescriptive, that is, what we're required to obey, and what's descriptive, that is, something that's just happened in Scripture that somebody did. Next, see the principle that's inherent in the text. Sometimes that's really easy because it's very explicit. Commands, prohibitions, uh, principles that are explicit in the text, those are easy enough for us to follow. Sometimes it's not explicit, and we have to do a little work, a little thinking, meditating on what the principle is that we're to follow. We talked about the Joseph story and the fact that and again, this is important when you're doing Old Testament narrative. It's not just look at the example of Joseph. And Joseph was a good man, therefore be like Joseph. There's a lot more to the story in Genesis 37 through 50 than that. Uh, remember the punchline of that story? You remember when we talked about the story, right? The, fact, the story being when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, he ends up being elevated uh, high into the Egyptian kingdom. He administers the grain that was came in during the, the fat years, as it were. What was, what was the setting of the punchline? It's at the very end in Genesis 50. Anybody remember? Okay, so that's the punchline itself. And remember, after their father died, the brothers are thinking, boy, uh, Joseph's got all this power, he, and now that our father's dead, he might deal with us harshly. 
And they actually went and bowed down before him and basically asked for his forgiveness. And Joseph said, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for, as for you, you meant it evil against me. And that was true. The brothers did intend evil against Joseph. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Talk about somebody that recognized uh, God's purpose in trials. That was an excellent example of that. What's the big lesson out of that story? That throughout, though, he always gave all the glory to God. They were coming to him. You can interpret stuff. He goes, no, not me, but God is interpreting the things. He always, in spite of the level of importance that he reached, it was, he always attributed everything that he had and that he did okay. to God. Good point. And, and I don't mean to uh, belittle Joseph's character. He was a faithful, godly man. I, I just... Not sure that that's the main thing that we come out is uh, just to be an imitator of Joseph. That God was through providential circumstances taking care of His people. Exactly. I mean, the, the big picture lesson there is the the sovereignty of God, and the fact that He even uses what you would think were very bad circumstances to accomplish His purpose. Uh, not only taking care of His people, but also to move the program of God far along. Remember, He had told Abraham before that. They were going to be under Egyptian bondage for 400 years, and that comes later. But just to recognize that even in a case where somebody uses evil against you, God can turn that into good in working out his purpose. So another example I have here is from um, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and this is Jesus' teaching. He says, You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that is in the Old Testament scripture. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. So I'm curious, have any of you literally applied that? Have you had somebody that popped you on one side and you turned and said, Hit No. For <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> some reason that doesn't surprise me, Andre. Uh, so what... What is the application there, though? There's a principle there, even though I don't think any of us have ever done that, literally. What's the principle? Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate, exactly. Don't repay evil for evil. That's a really good illustration of it. But there's lots of other ways that we can do that that aren't explicit in this text. So those are just examples of times where you can read that and say, okay, I'll do that if anybody ever hits me on the face. But... It, it needs to go beyond that. That, that brings an interesting uh, point to me, and I've been wondering about this. During the, the um, Great Tribulation, there are going to be believers, and some believers are going to be martyred, and others are going to remain alive to go into the Millennial Kingdom. If faced with extermination, or faced with, with you know, kill or be killed, should we not try to defend ourselves? Should we just let ourselves be beheaded or whatever? Just say, okay, here I am, you know, I'm a believer, you're gonna chop my head off. Or should we should we try to resist and and make it to to the millennial kingdom? So I think you have examples of both and to me the way to best answer that is to look back in, in history and see on the one hand you had people that were arrested, burned at the stake, had their heads cut off, they didn't resist. It's a tremendous testimony to to their faith in God and to their faithfulness. Uh, and at 
even while they didn't resist, they were witnesses. I mean, you can imagine the people that observed that and saw that they didn't forsake their confession, they didn't forsake their faith, and some of it, it turned some of them, and, and so some of their observers became believers. At the same time, you know, you have examples where they were after Paul, and he knew they were after him, and he escaped. So it would depend on the circumstance. I don't think it's our place to have a whole-scale assault, you know, to kind of organize and, no, no, but yeah, individually. So yes. Certainly we would say, you know, if somebody attacks us or our family, nothing wrong with defending ourselves. But in, in some of these cases, you know, you're still going to end up at the stake. And I think at that point, your responsibility is to be faithful, not recant your confession, and, and use that as a testimony. There was an example of that when there was, uh, I don't know if it was here or whatever, where there was a school shooting and stuff like that, and one person put a gun to a little girl's head and said, you know, deny Jesus Christ, whatever. She said, no, I can't. You blew her head off. Yeah. And that might have been in Columbine. And then 12 more kids were also asked. Yeah. They saw what happened to the first, and they still faithful to Christ and said, I am. And yeah. they died willing. They died knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. Oh, she definitely, she had a gun to her head. She, she, said, knew, she knew she what said, was coming. She said a very godly example in her death. And, and mm -hmm. Twelve, I think, more kids followed in her steps. Yeah. I remember, it's too bad that we have so many mass shootings to use as examples, but in a similar way, the guy that shot up the Amish school, uh, the Amish people came out and said they forgave him. And it was a really strong testimony. Uh, I, I'm not uh, yeah, commending everything the Amish do, but it was. Like that football player last week, the, the father already said that he forgave the two, the two young men who killed his son, a promising high school football player. Yeah. You know, that, that to me is, I mean, I, I think I have pretty good faith, but when I hear stuff like that, it is, it is definitely yeah. convicting. For me. And it's only by the power of God that we can do that. It's certainly not something we can do ourselves. So two things, so in, in that case, for example, that doesn't mean you don't want the government to do due process. It just means I am grateful God forgave me. So no, that's right. I will forgive you too. Yeah, it's, they should still have to pay the consequences of their actions. And secondly, um, the, uh, the idea of turning the other cheek I think it's very applicable in witnessing because often when you witness, you get people all worked up. They're not ready to they're not ready to walk away or anything, but they they become very aggressive towards you, at least verbally. And that's not a time to walk away. That's a time to stay. That's right. It's also not a time to get back aggressive with them, right? Right. And and to, you just got a wide door right there, and they're listening. Yeah. Okay, good. As we principalize the text in these cases where it's not so explicit, we want to make sure that we're getting a valid principle, and oftentimes those same things will be affirmed elsewhere in the text. Certainly the principle of not striking back, not retaliating, is affirmed elsewhere. Think of that principle as an implication or an extrapolation of the text and as a bridge to application. And again, 
you want to be careful about reading something that was intended to be prescriptive and making it, sorry, I said that wrong, that was intended to be descriptive and making it prescriptive. But at the same time, we do have examples in Scripture, right? And this one is one that Zook included. Just as Christians in Antioch took an offering for the poor believers in Judea, we can do the same thing today, right? We can, and we're doing that with Emmanuel's child. We're helping with an evangelistic outreach to another part of the world that's very distant from us and that most of us will never go to or, or, or know those people. But because of the love of Christ that's in us, we want those children and that generation to hear the gospel. We give towards that end. Zook says, write out specific action responses. And again, he's saying that in a context that it's better to do that and be more specific than it is to say, I want to be more like Jesus. I mean, what does that mean? How does that work it out, work itself out in your day-to-day -day life? And I know some of you probably are more likely to write something down. I'm not one of those people. Uh, but in any case, you need to uh, think about specific concrete actions that you can do to make an application from Scripture. This was, uh, I had read this, I guess, before in Zook, but I hadn't thought about it in a while, an application acronym that he called SPECS. So as you're reading and as you've interpreted a passage of Scripture, these are good questions to ask, really. Is there a sin to be forsaken? Is there a promise to be claimed? Is there an example to be followed? And there are examples in Scripture, to be sure. Uh, is there a command to be obeyed, or is there a stumbling block to be avoided? The last one is rely on the Holy Spirit. We rely on the Holy Spirit not only in applying the Bible, but even in understanding while we're interpreting. We must be sure in the entire process of studying, interpreting, and applying the Bible, we're relying on the Spirit, Holy Spirit to guide us. And we, we do that really by just acknowledging and asking for his help even before we start. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us areas in our lives where application is needed and then make us sensitive to that need and give us the desire to change by appropriating, appropriating the truth. In applying God's word, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to work in us to bring about changes in our lives that will make us more Christ-like. Now, he's going to do that, but it's still important for us to ask and to acknowledge that he's working and to remind ourselves as much as anything that he's working to do that in our lives. We have responsibility. We don't just say, well, I'm going to rely on the Spirit. I'm going to let go and let God. We have responsibility to change the way that we live or think. At the same time, the Spirit, we know he's going to be faithful to do his side to help us. This was a good quote. Uh, this is again by Johann Bingle in 1742, as cited in Zook's book. Apply yourself wholly to the text, and he's talking about why you're studying it, and then apply the text wholly to yourself. Okay, I want to finish with one slightly different uh, instruction about application. This has more to do with when you're listening to sermons and I know a number of you are John MacArthur fans. I am as well. And this is a letter from him uh, via Grace to You. It's dated August 15, 2017. And probably some of you have heard about this before. MacArthur is not one that puts a lot of application in his sermons. And he gets criticized for that. 
And in this letter, he's responding to that. Here's what he says. More than once, I've been asked why my sermons focus so much on biblical interpretation and not as much on personal application. In a similar vein, verse-by-verse Bible teaching and an emphasis on doctrine are sometimes criticized as being irrelevant and impractical. Which, again, that goes back to what I said before. The Bible is never irrelevant because we're all going to stand before God in judgment one day. People don't realize that. They don't understand that. But you don't make the Bible relevant. It already is. MacArthur says, My response to that is simple. It may sound familiar to you because I communicate the principle at every opportunity. The meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. If you don't have the true meaning of the text, you don't have the Word of God. That's why exegesis, which is a linguistically and historically sound interpretation of the text, is the absolute and primary essential in every sermon. So my priority and driving passion is to make the truth of Scripture known, to make it clear. I want people to know what God's Word says. I'm confident that if I can help men and women understand the implications of the Bible, that is, to feel the full weight and meaning of divine truth, the Holy Spirit will guide them in the application of that truth to their individual lives and circumstances. Yet, so let me pause there. Uh, We don't do a lot of, and David hit on this as well this morning, we don't tell you what to do when you leave here. We don't lay out, we can't lay out. Well, next time you're in this particular situation, you need to do this. The Holy Spirit can do that. We preach the truth, we preach the Word of God, and each one of you is at a different place, each one of us is at a different place, both in our walk with the Lord and where we are through the week, and the Spirit of God can take what we teach from the Bible and, and guide you as you apply it. Finally, he says, yes, some biblical principles may seem more practical or more immediately applicable than others, but all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16. Teaching what the Bible means is inherently practical. In fact, until a person understands the implications of a verse or passage, no sound application can be made. So he's saying a lot of what we've said this morning. Uh, but I think the part about the Spirit being the one to make application, both as you listen to sermons or teaching and as you do your own study, I think that's really important. So let me read one more paragraph. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to make the most personal, individual applications of the truth of Scripture in the heart of the hearer. And he does that infallibly in a way that I as a preacher cannot. He instructs and directs us and how to put God's word to work in our lives. It's well said. Okay, so now we're through with hermeneutics. Of course, if you have questions or anything that you come up with, even down the road, feel free to ask those. But next Sunday, during our second hour, we're going to start a class on the biblical covenants. That, now that's not the same as covenant theology, and we'll make that distinction as we walk through. But next week, we'll just introduce the subject. And then in the weeks to follow, we'll talk about things like the Noahic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, the Book of Deuteronomy as a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant, the Priestly Covenant in Numbers, the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel, and the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. 
those covenants uh, work together to unfold the plan of God as it's unfolded in the Old Testament. And I think it's just a really good study for us because what we'll do after that is an Old Testament survey. So I think it'll be helpful for us to look through the covenants first, and that'll kind of give us a structure to hang what we do in Old Testament survey on. There won't be any reading or anything you need to do for next week, um, but just make sure you come. <laughs> All right, any questions about anything that we've covered this morning or anything that we've covered over the course of our hermeneutics class? All right, if not, thank you all for being here, for being good listeners, be doers of the word this week and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, your word is precious to us. Uh, we're thankful we live in a time uh, where we have the complete revelation of God. And we know that you have your purposes for every generation and you have your revelation to every generation, but we know too that we're closer to the return of Christ and to the consummation of your plan than ever before. And we know at the same time it could be another thousand years, but you call us to be faithful. You call us to know uh, what your word says to us, and, and we have a responsibility to obey that. We thank you that the Spirit will help us both understand your word and put it into practice. We thank, we thank you for people both in Bible times that are recorded for us in Scripture and even like the ones that we mentioned this morning that when faced with tremendous pressure to recant and to deny Christ, they didn't. And they didn't because they were yours. And Lord, may that be an encouragement to us to walk in the same way. Help us to be faithful. Help us to love you with a whole heart. Help us to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.